open to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come to your word this morning, we bow before you. And we recognize that you are the one true God. You are the God who is in control of everything. You are sovereign over all. You're sovereign even over sin. You're sovereign over demons. You set boundaries within which they are allowed to operate and yet you restrict what they are allowed to do and what they cannot do. And Father, again, as we, as we see you at work, we are so grateful for your mercy and for your compassion and for your grace. How your grace becomes more amazing day by day as we see the wretchedness of our own sin and our utter inability to be able to be free from it were it not for you. And so, Father, we come to you today humbly. Help us to see you this morning in your word in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we saw in chapter 8 the beginning of the outpouring of the next round of judgments. We saw, we've seen as um, in our study, we've seen again that John was commanded to write. He was commanded to record the things that he had seen. That's chapter one. He was then commanded to record the things that are. That was the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's chapters two and three. And then beginning in chapter four, we see an, an incredible uh, worship service in heaven. That occupies chapters four and five. Now in chapter five, we're introduced to a book, a book that has writing on the inside and the outside that, has, that is sealed with seven seals. And literally all of creation is searched exhaustively to find one who is able, one who is worthy, one who is qualified in order to open that book, to break those seals in order to be able to look inside. And there's no one found. There is only one who is worthy to do that, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he appears as a lamb that had been slain. And he is worshipped because being the lamb that was slain, not only is he worthy to look into the book, but it is he who has purchased men for God from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And then he begins to break those seals. And that is, that's chapter 6, getting into chapter 7. Actually, even the beginning part, the beginning verse of chapter 8. And we see as these seals are broken that the judgment of God on Satan, the judgment of God on unbelieving man begins to be unleashed. And we see the four horses released, the fourth seal. We see that the rider on the fourth horse, the, the pale horse, is given power to kill a quarter of mankind. And then we see of the fifth seal, we see the martyrs under the altar. Lord, how long until you write what is wrong? And then the sixth seal where you have this tremendous earthquake and unredeemed man begins to recognize who is responsible for these judgments that are coming. And in fact, there's, they have no excuse. It's not that the problem for them is not knowledge or lack thereof. They're not ignorant. We see them 
as they cry out, they said to the mountains, this is in chapter 6, verse 16, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And for them, that's, that is a rhetorical question, right? Who's able to stand? The answer is, you're not. You will not be able to stand in the judgment of God. But chapter 7 goes through and says, there are those who will. And so in chapter 7, we're introduced to the witnesses from Israel. There's 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel making 144,000, and these are sealed with the name of God and of Christ on their forehead. Now, whether or not that's visible or not isn't actually given, but who knows? God does, and we're going to see today that it's not just God who knows. There will be others who know as well, and so we see those 144,000 sealed. Those are going to be God's witnesses on this planet during this time of great judgment. And there's going to be phenomenal fruit from that ministry. That's the last half of chapter 7. That's the multitude beyond number of those who are going to come to saving faith in Christ during this time period. And it's from everywhere and everybody, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, there's no one who is outside the scope of being able to be rescued. And we see that the 144,000 stand. We see the souls of these who are being martyred standing in the presence of God. They are able to stand because they have been rescued. Then last week, we saw that when the, when the seventh seal was broken, that seventh seal gave immediate rise to another round of judgments. And that round of judgments are going to be seven trumpets that are going to sound. These trumpets are given to seven angels, and as each one of these trumpets is sounded, another judgment comes forth. And so last week, we saw the first four of these trumpets in chapter 8. And all four of these judgments were not aimed directly at mankind. They were aimed at the ecological system. They were aimed at the cosmological system. And so we see that um, there was fire thrown down to heaven. Uh, there's hail, fire mixed with blood thrown down to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass. Then the second judgment where you have this uh, large mountain object thrown into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood and a third of the ships are destroyed and a third of the things that are in the sea die. The third trumpet sounds and you have a star that comes to heaven and breaks up and lands on the, on the rivers and on the springs of water and a third of the waters are basically poisoned. So now you've got judgment on the sea, you've got judgment on the land, you have got judgment on drinking water. The fourth is a judgment on the heavens, and that is where you see the sun is, a third of the sun, for, uh, well, the sun for a third of the day is extinguished. And this, is, this isn't talking about the third that's at nighttime. This is a third during the day where all of a sudden now there's darkness and the moon is dark and the stars are darkened. And then we see at the end of chapter 8, these things that are significant enough for people who are on the earth, right? You have an eagle flying in mid-heaven who proclaims woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That's, that's a catchphrase in the book of Revelation. When you see that, those who dwell on the earth, that is unredeemed, unrepentant man. And now, woe is being declared to them. Why? 
because what's coming is so much worse than what they've already experienced. That brings us to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So you can see why the angel or the eagle is flying through mid-heaven saying, whoa, these things that have happened to the planet are bad. Now, from here out, these trumpets are going to be aimed specifically at you, those who continue to rebel, those who continue to not repent and turn. Question. Okay, so the question is, is five months as five months as we know it? And I would say that answer is yes. That is a measurement of time. Now, the question that comes up on the five months is whether that five months is the sting lasts for five months or the, uh, the plague of these locusts lasts for five months. Um, and... When we look at the, in fact, we're going to get to that in just one second. So, yeah, it's talking about actual time. Gunner. I don't remember the exact length of time. I think it was longer than five months. I think for some reason seven is sticking in my mind. Uh, we're going to get to there uh, because that is actually still down road, down the road from where we are. Um, although we're going to get into part of that today. No, no, because during the time that the locusts are there, people aren't dying. They want to, but they can't. And we're going to get to that in just a second. And so this time here, all right, frankly, this punishment is just that. It's punishment. It's torment. And when you hear that word torment, 
biblically? Torment, you could substitute the word torture. It is anguish. When the rich man, in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you remember that he, look, send Lazarus that he can dip his finger in water to give me a drop of water. Why? Because I am in torment. I am in anguish. I am in agony. And that's what this judgment is. It hurts bad enough that people want to die. And they can't. You can't even commit suicide. And we're getting, again, we're getting, getting ahead of myself. All right, John sees a star that had fallen from heaven. He didn't see the star fall. The star has already fallen. It's in the perfect tense. So it is something that has happened in the past that has an ongoing result. Now, this is most likely a reference to Satan himself. And there's a couple of references here. You'll see Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12, 7 to 9, that are, that are referring to this event. The bottomless pit is an interesting concept. The term for bottomless basically means deep. And it's a transliteration. That's where we get our word abyss, is from the Greek word for bottomless. And the idea is, when it's used, it's used nine times. That word is used nine times in the New Testament, seven times in the book of Revelation. The two times that it's used outside of Revelation, there's one in Luke where the demon uh, talks to Jesus and said, have you come to send me? Please don't send me to the abyss. Please don't send me to the pit. And so in Luke, the idea is that is basically the prison for demons. Not all demons are free to roam about. There are some who have been locked away by God for this moment. They have not been free. They've been in demon jail. You'll see it in the book of Romans where it's basically, it's the place of the dead. And so here you have a, a place where these demons are confined. If you look in Jude 6 and 7, you'll see that there were a number of demons who were kind of the, uh, I'm not even sure how to, they're high on the hierarchy of evil and wickedness and vileness. And they were specifically set aside and imprisoned by God. And so Satan's given the key to the prison. Now, who would he get that key from? Who's got it? Christ does. You get that back in chapter 1, right? He's the one who has the keys of death and Hades, the place of the dead. So he gets it temporarily. He can't put it in his back pocket. He'd like to because he's going to end up in this very place down the road for peace. Now, when this prison is opened, it is like standing at a distance and looking at a huge, huge fire. Um, Being a fireman, I've had a chance to see this kind of thing a number of times. And it's pretty impressive. When you see a building that is uh, really, uh, there's a fancy term for it, it's called blowing and going. And you just see smoke being belched, black, thick. I can tell you, I have been in buildings that are like this, and you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is thick. 
it is acrid. It is, uh, you, you find out whether or not somebody's claustrophobic in a situation like that. Because it can be quite an emotional event. That's, by the way, that kind of smoke, you'll see that in scripture on a number of occasions where that is associated with judgment. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, what was visible from a distance when you looked at Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, that cloud of smoke rising from a place where there used to be cities and now there is nothing. There's a number of passages there for you that you can look up uh, to see. When you have a fire like that, or when you've got smoke like that, it darkens the sky. Now, we've experienced that here, right? When you get a good-sized wildland fire, and all of a sudden, not easy to see because all you go outside and you're in this smoke soup, right? Hard to breathe. That again, that's, that's the idea here. And so you have, Satan opens that pit, he unlocks the gate, and this smoke comes pouring out. That's not all that comes pouring out, because out of the smoke come these locusts. Now, John describes them as locusts. Are they actual locusts? Well, they sure don't act like them. Because what do locusts do? Yeah, they eat vegetation. You don't hear about locusts attacking people. And you sure don't hear anything about locusts having a sting like a scorpion. Now, the idea of locusts is you can have these huge, huge clouds of them throughout history. In fact, not distant history. You'll see these uh, from back in the 1800s. There was a cloud of locusts that covered 2,000 square miles. That's a lot of locusts. And again, what happens when the locusts move in? Your agriculture moves out, right? Because they move in and they eat everything that's that's living, green, vegetation-wise. Except these locusts, uh uh-uh. God says, I've already dealt for now with the planet. I've already dealt with the vegetation. You locusts, you do have a target. And your target is men, human beings. But not any human being. Specifically, you are to target those who are continuing to rebel against God. So what, what, is, what are these locusts then? They are a form of judgment. And this is the type of judgment. You know what this is? You know what it is with these, with these locusts? When they sting you and you want to die, but you can't, that is a foretaste of hell. You want to know what hell's like? Here's your beginning. Here's your hors d'oeuvre. Here's your taste test. Billy Joel is a cruddy theologian. When he talks about only the good die young, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. He's going to find out different. This idea of power, often there's two primary words that are used for power in the New Testament. One of them is dunamis. Now, what, what word do you think we get from dunamis? Dynamite. So that's, that's ability. That's just innate uh, power, strength. 
That's not this word. This word is exousia. This word is the, it's often translated authority. So it's not just ability. It's the authority. It's the freedom to put that power into play. And that's what these demons have. So, when they look at two people, uh-oh, that one's got, you're in trouble, buddy. That one's got the seal of God on her forehead. That one doesn't. We're coming to visit you. Now, if you read commentaries, you'll see that five months is the typical lifespan of an actual locust. Now, are these actual locusts? No. I say they're demons. They're acting that way. They are taking that form. Their idea, and again, their idea here is punishment. It is to, it is to dish out pain and torture. Yet, what do we see even in the midst of this judgment, is it uncontrolled? Can they just do anything and everything they want to? No. Number one, they were incarcerated up to this point and they've been released. Meaning, God controls when and where and how they exist. Second, when they come out, they can't kill. God restricts them. He restricts the scope of what they're able to do. So they cannot just function as they would want. And so here again, God is sovereign over all of this. But please, don't forget that God is also the one who is meeting out this torment. That is also in his control. Just as the anguish and the agony of eternal hell is in his control. Men are going to seek death and death flees from them. The Greek word for flee here is fujo. What word do you think we might get from that in English? Fugitive. And so the idea here is they want to die and it's like trying to hold on to oil with your fingers. It just slips away. They long for it, and they can't get it. Now, these locusts are different than physical locusts. If you look in Psalm, excuse me, in Proverbs 30, 27, you'll find that locusts have no king. But these ones do. They have a king. He's from the abyss. He's the angel of the abyss. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. In Greek, his name is Apollyon. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll remember that Christian had a rendezvous with Apollyon, right? Now, Apollyon is, is almost certainly not Satan, all right? This is another demon whose realm is, he, he was kind of the head honcho of the demons in the abyss, And so here you have, for months, people beginning to experience what hell is going to be like. That's woe number one. Now let's get to woe number two, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, 
one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the head of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So here you have another trumpet sounding, and now you end up with these creatures, which John is trying to use language he understands and examples that he understands to try to describe these beings. It begins with the command, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So they're bound. So what kind of angels are these if they're bound? Are they holy angels? No, why would you bind a holy angel? You don't have to bind a holy angel because they're simply doing the will of God. These are demons. And again, note that these demons, how many are there? There's four, as in the number after three, the number before five. There's four of them. They're bound at a particular location. They're at the Euphrates River. And note that they are bound for a particular time. God has held these angels, these demons, in place so that they would be released at a specific time. And that time is, at the time John's seeing it, that time is then, now. And they're released. And they're released for a purpose they're going to kill a third of mankind. So let's start with 100, okay? When you go back to the fourth seal, back in chapter 6, a quarter of mankind was killed. So from 100, how many are left? 75. That's right. We're going back to elementary school math. I know it's the kind I do too. Now in this judgment, a third of mankind, so you've got 75 left, and now a third are going to be killed. So a third of 75 is 25, so how many are left? 50, so we've gone from 100 to 50. Half of mankind has been killed under these two judgments. There are 8 billion people on this planet right now. That's 4 billion dead people. The undertakers are busy. And there's armies involved. There are 200 million of these horsemen. Now, if you go back uh, to the 1970s, you would find that Red China, the People's Republic of China, boasted about having an army of 200 million. 
Now, is that what this is referring to? Probably not. Because it's, these armies aren't coming from the same place. It's probably best to see that these four angels that have been released, these four demons that have been released, are the heads of armies. And so congregate, uh, congregately, maybe I just made up a word, um, you've got 200 million of these, and they are scattered all around the planet. Now, John describes them as horses. When you read the description that John gives, do they sound like horses? Well, I haven't seen too many horses that have the face, the head of a lion. And I've never seen a horse that had serpents for a tail, serpents with heads. And I've never seen, I've seen some horses, I've been around some horses that had pretty bad breath. But I've never seen one belch in fire and smoke and brimstone before. So what is John doing here? Again, he's describing something that he's never seen before, trying to use ideas that would be known to his audience to try to describe what it is that he's looking at. So what are these things exactly? I don't know. They're weapons of war. And they're pretty efficient. If you're going to wipe out on the order of two and a half billion people, that's pretty efficient. You'll see that John doesn't describe the number of this like he does other places. So if you go back, for instance, into chapter 5, you see him talking about myriads upon myriads of angels. There's too many to count. Lots and lots and lots and lots of them. In chapter 7, verse 9, just flip back one page. Chapter 7, verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So here you've got lots and lots and lots and lots of people. And yet when it comes to these beings, these horsemen, he's very specific with their number because that's the number that he heard. 200 million. Now, this judgment is not Armageddon. Armageddon is still in the future. This is war and destruction being meted out in time before that one. So in other words, this judgment this is still a prelude to the main event. These colors, the color of fire is red, the color of hyacinth is dark blue or black, and the color of brimstone would be yellow, sulfur. So again, the idea of fire and smoke and brimstone, where else are we going to see fire and smoke and brimstone. Hell. So again, people are beginning to get a foretaste of what waits. And yet, even after the stinging locusts, and even after the judgment here of millions, hundreds of millions of people being killed, those who survive still refuse to repent. Verse 20. 
the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. So what is marking society at this moment in time after you have these judgments? You have those who refuse to repent of their idolatry. Where does their worship belong? It belongs with God. He's the only one worthy of worship. And yet, where do they spend theirs? Anywhere but him. And so there are things. Paul in Corinthians talks about how when people offer offerings, when they offer sacrifices to these uh, deities, they're worshiping demons. This word for murder in the lexicon is it's particularly by the sword. And so what do you have? You've got rampant violence. No regard for life. Have you noticed lately how much that's increasing even in our time? Now take that and start multiplying it exponentially. And that's what society will be like. Sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakon. So what words do you think we might get from that one? Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, drug usage. Now, maybe that drug usage is for worship. It's a drug, it's a magic potion, it can be a charm. The idea is I'm escaping what my reality is. And so I will use my recreational pharmaceuticals in order to accomplish that. The word for immorality is porneia. And so immorality, sexual deviancy, pornography, rampant. Thefts. Clema, which is derived from the word klepto. Gee, have we heard that one before? Now, Who in here has been the victim of a thief? Lots of hands going up. Yours should have gone up. Lots of us know what it is to be the victim of a thief. How scarce are resources in our society? Is food scarce? Anybody in here going hungry because they can't eat? Because there's no food to eat? Boy, we're truly suffering in our society when, gee whiz, there's a shortage of these chips and so maybe I can't buy a new car. And used cars are more expensive. Wow. But fast forward to this How much food is available? These judgments are burning up the green stuff. I'm not talking about the funny green stuff. I'm talking about the green stuff that we would eat. That's being burned up. Now granted, there's only half the number of people on the planet as there used to be. But when all of a sudden you've destroyed agriculture and you've had rampant war, and you've had rampant famine, there's not going to be a lot of resources. And so now all of a sudden, what's happening? You've got people who are remaining. There's no respect for individual rights at this moment. There's no respect for property rights. There's no respect for any of that. 
So as you have society that is basically dominated by violence and me being able to take whatever it is that you have. That's what society is going to be. And it certainly appears that there's coming a time when people are no longer going to avail themselves of the opportunity to repent. And we've already seen that, haven't we? You go back to the sixth seal when people know who it is. They know why these judgments are coming and they know who's bringing them, yet they will not bow their knee. And now it seems to be coming to the point where God says, okay, Burger King rules apply. Have it your way. You don't want to repent? You're not repenting. And so now we begin to see judgment, punishment being handed out for the refusal to repent. And that's not even the end of that woe. Chapter 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. So now, here's another angel. And the word here for another is again alos, and so it's another of the same kind. So, is this angel coming down, is this the Lord Jesus? No, it's not. Jesus is not an angel, not in this, not in this context, and he's certainly not the same kind, right? as the ones that we have been seeing. And so this is another angel. Now, he's got a little bit of a different appearance than the other ones have. This one comes down, and he's clothed with a cloud. Now, what does that bring to mind? See? Okay, so the Shekinah glory, that could be. Okay, the cloud. So, again, you did have the cloud come down, right? sometimes so thick that you couldn't even see what was going on in the temple. When you see terms of the second coming, what's always associated with the second coming of Christ? He's coming on the clouds with great glory. And so the idea here, the idea of cloud, now, when Jesus comes back, his second coming, why is he coming? He is bringing what with him? Judgment. When Jesus returns, what immediately happens? Armageddon. When Jesus comes, he's coming on the white horse. You, you'll find this in Revelation 19. We're going to get there at one point, eventually. He comes on the white horse and he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, right? And he's at the head of the armies of the redeemed who are going to be spectators because when Jesus comes at that point, he has a sword, he's the word of God, and he is going to slay all those who oppose him with the sword of his mouth. That's the context of the second coming. Judgment. So this angel is clothed with a cloud. Yet, what is the other distinguishing characteristic that he has? He's got a rainbow 
Oh, now what's a rainbow? Where does that come from? See, so we have a rainbow. The, the immediate context in Revelation, go back to chapter 4, and we see that there is a rainbow over the throne of God. What was the significance of the rainbow in history? When was it given? Right, after the flood, as the promise of God, as the covenant of God, that he would no longer destroy the earth with water. So when it rains, he puts in the cloud his rainbow. What's the rainbow a picture of? Well, it came, it resulted from judgment, but what is the rainbow? Why does the rainbow exist? It's God's promise that he would no longer judge the world that way. That is a picture of God's mercy. That's a picture of God's grace. The rainbow. That's a promise by God that there's no longer going to be a universal flood as there was in the days of Noah. And so you've got both. And so here you have this angel, and yeah, there's judgment, and there's mercy. And the idea here of him putting one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, there's no part of the earth that is somehow exempt from what this angel is going to say. It covers everything and everybody. Got a face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. Now he's holding a book. And this book is open. And the way it's termed in Greek, it's a, it's a, a perfect participle. So it's been opened in the past and it's going to stay open. Now what would this book be? Okay, could it be the book of life? It could be except the book of life hasn't been opened yet. We're going to see that later in, in the book, in Revelation. This book that is open, what was Jesus doing with the book with the seven seals? When he breaks a seal, what's he doing with the book? It's, he's opening the book. And when you break another seal, what are you doing with the book? You're opening more of the book. And so probably the best way to understand this is that this is an idea of the judgments that are coming. Because again, that's what's coming out of that book. He cries out. What he, and again, this idea of crying out uh, is the idea of megaphone, <laughs> literally. Loud voice. Now, what he says, John is precluded from writing. And whatever it is that he says causes a response. And again, what the seven peals of thunder are, we're not given. And what the seven peals of thunder said, we're not given. This is the only time in Revelation where John is commanded not to write. Remember, what's been his job all this time? Write these things down. Write them down. You know, it's interesting. Where's John physically when this is happening? Geographically. He's on Patmos. He's been exiled. Patmos is one of those places, that's, that's the Roman equivalent of finding nowhere and putting you in the middle of it. He doesn't have the ability to go back to the churches where he has ministered. He doesn't have the ability to go and proclaim verbally God's truth to others. Unless there's others on Patmos with him. That's where he is restricted. And yet, by what he is writing, he is able to prophesy in the name of Christ because what he writes is able to go far beyond where he can go. 
And so his ministry is not over in that way. But here, it's sealed up. Now, is that a problem? What has the book of Revelation been predominantly to this point? It's a revealing. And what's it a revealing of? It's a revealing of Christ, and it is a revealing of mysteries. Remember, mysteries are things that have been previously hidden, but are now being, being, be, they're being made manifest. Man, I can't talk. Things that have previously been hidden, now they're being revealed. Now, some of these things have been previously revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, lots of them have. Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament. There are many. I, if I remember right, I think there are references to 278. That number's sticking in my head. 278 different verses from the Old Testament are referred to in the book of Revelation. That's why if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you'd better be reading your Old Testament. So there's been lots of detail that has been given in the Old Testament, and yet what are we finding in the New Testament and specifically here in the book of Revelation? There's additional detail being put out. So that again, things that people previously have been going, gee whiz, I'm not sure. Now they're able to see this because God is making it plain for them. Do we need to know, gee whiz, what exactly are these locusts? Do I need to know exactly what those are? No. What I do need to understand is what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that is made clear. It's the same with these horsemen. I may not be able to go through. I can't draw a picture of these things that would make sense. I can draw a picture as to what John has described. All right? I can do that. You don't want to see it because I'm a horrible artist. All right? But get somebody who can draw. They could draw a rendition of what John has described. Is that going to be the exact representation of what it is that's going to come? Probably not. Do I need to understand exactly what those things are? No. Because again, it has been made clear why they're there and what it is that they're accomplishing. So we've got the information that we need to have. God has been very clear with that. And so there's been much that God has, and in fact, again, <laughs> we have enough to be able to trust and obey. We have enough to do that. And in fact, unrepentant, unredeemed man has enough. It's not an issue of lack of information. It's not an issue of ignorance. These things have been disclosed. They're out there. They're available. People will refuse to repent. Even in the midst of all of this, they're going to continue to refuse to repent. Which, by the way, when you're preaching, when you are proclaiming God's truth to people, that's why we emphasize, today's the day. You have opportunity now. How many of you have encountered those in life for whom death is not a hypothetical situation? They're staring it in the face. They used to weigh 250. Now they weigh 84 pounds because the cancer has ravaged them. They're in a hospital bed in their living room. They're fixing to start taking the morphine for the pain and the Ativan in order to make them comfortable so they can die in relative peace. And yet, even when they stare death in the face, they refuse to hear. They refuse to bow. There is no guarantee 
that when you come to that day, if you're here and you're without Christ, there is no guarantee that you're going to come to that day and you're going to, oh, I should have had a V8. Today's the day. Now's the time. And that's the message we proclaim to people. There is salvation. It is available. Take it now. Remember back in the fifth seal, the question that was asked by the martyrs? How long, O oh Lord, when are you going to bring vindication? That question is being answered. Here it comes. John's commanded to take the book from the angel and to eat it. You'll see in your notes, Jeremiah 15, 16, thy words were found and I did eat them and they were unto me the joy and salvation of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And there's also a reference to Ezekiel where Ezekiel was commanded to do the very same thing. He was given a scroll with writing on the inside and the outside and it was full of judgment and lamentations and woe and he ate it and in his mouth it was sweet as honey because God's word is precious. And yet, in his stomach, it was bitter because you realize the consequences of that word on those who are rebellious. And John, you're not done prophesying. You know, it's interesting. Ezekiel was commissioned twice. You, you find in chapter 3 and again in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was commissioned by God. He was set as the watchman to proclaim God's message. And here the apostle John is getting the same thing. He had already been commissioned to write. And now, John, you're not done. There's more for you to write. There's more for you to proclaim. And how far is that information that John is going to proclaim go? It goes to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I don't know about you. I am so grateful. that I will not face that. And the only reason I will not face that, I deserve that. And I deserve it forever. And the only reason that I will not experience that is the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ. The love of God demonstrated in Christ in taking my place to experience this for me, for you. That ought to be a great jumping off point for worshiping him this morning. Let's pray. Father, how horrible hell is. Eternal anguish, torment, no relief, no respite. No end. And that is what we 
deserved. And yet, Lord Jesus, you gave your life as a substitute for mine and for ours. You endured the full, unmixed wrath of God that was due to me. That wrath has been satisfied. It was poured out on you, and you drank it all. And yet, death had no hold on you. You've been raised. You've ascended to heaven. You're seated at the right hand of God at this moment in the place that's rightfully yours. Father, we worship you and we are so grateful. But, oh Lord, as we see the consequences of continued rebellion, Lord, would that stir in our hearts a compulsion to proclaim this message to those who do not know you, to warn them of the wrath that is to come and to tell them of the way of escape that you have made. Father, you've left us here for that purpose. Help us to be faithful in being your hands, your feet, your mouths in this day and time. We worship you, Lord. You are, in fact, sovereign over all. And you're good, and you're kind, and you're merciful. But you are also holy. And you are right to visit upon those who continue to rebel against you the consequences for that rebellion. You're right to do it. And you would have been right to do it to me. And so, Father, help us to live in gratitude, but help us also to live in full devotion to you. Help us to worship you aright this morning as the great and mighty God that you are. In Christ's name, amen.